0: On December 2nd, 2004, two co-workers came into work at Al Zulo's Remodeling Specialists in Rockford, Illinois, and found a horrific scene in the back hallway. They saw their 69-year-old co-worker, Marianne Clibbery, lying face down in a pool of blood. Marianne had been beaten to death, and there was blood everywhere, pooling on the floor, splattered on the walls. Whoever hit Marianne had done it with enough force to make the blood drops fly 15 feet. Now, Rockford is the second largest city in Illinois, right after Chicago, but residents there say that despite that, it has a hometown feel, and Mary Ann was a pillar of the community. Everyone knew her from the print and TV ads she filmed for Al Zulo's remodeling specialists, along with her business partner, 64-year-old George Hansen. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, we saw a lot of these TV ads. Local cable was a big deal, and a lot of people in the community would star in their own ads. At Al Zulo's, the Don't Move improvements where, where one, one call does, does it all. all. Marianne had worked at Al Zulo's for over 30 years. Friends and family say that she was kind and generous, the type of person who would do anything for anyone. On the morning of the 22nd, George Hansen and another colleague, Randy Baxter, arrived at the office at around 7 a.m. After Randy found Marianne's body, he called 911. Once police got to the scene, they began trying to piece together what had happened. Al Zulo's was a family-run, very well-known business. The employees had been there for years, some of them for decades, and they were like family. So this vicious murder shocked them and the entire community. Mary Ann's friends and colleagues said they couldn't imagine who would have wanted to hurt her. Mary Ann was kind, the type of person who would take money out of her own pocket to help employees who were having problems. Yet someone had viciously attacked Mary Ann and beaten her to death with a hammer. Who killed this devoted mother and grandmother just days before Christmas? I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. While police began to investigate Marianne Ann Clibury's murder, a forensic team arrived on the scene. The pathologist determined that Marianne had suffered at least three blows to the back of her head, probably from a hammer. The autopsy would reveal that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Now, this forensic team did a very thorough investigation, and they found a lot of crucial clues. The case was covered in an episode of Forensic Files titled Frozen Assets which explained how the team was able to figure out that there was fresh blood on top of coagulated dried blood. They said that this meant that Marianne had been attacked twice. So the killer came up behind her and bludgeoned her with a hammer, hitting her at least twice. And then, experts believed, she may have tried to crawl to get help or given some other indication that she was still alive. And then her killer came back and kept hitting her until she was dead. So there had been two separate attacks. Whoever did this to Marianne wanted to make absolutely sure that they had finished the job. Marianne's purse was missing, but although there were a lot of valuable items in the store, it didn't seem like anything else had been stolen. So police are already starting to suspect that if robbery wasn't the motive, this could have been an inside job. So they started taking a closer look at Marianne's personal life and her colleagues. Marianne was a widow and the mother of five. All of her children had grown up and left home. Her late husband had died of cancer. She had a long-term partner, a boyfriend named Howard Sundin. Everyone knew him as Gene. Gene told Forensic Files that he was legally blind and that Marianne had been the light of his life. He seemed to totally adore her. He would tell people, she was my eyes, she was my love, and she was my life. Mary Ann was born in Chicago in 1935 and grew up in a housing project, according to the Beloyed Daily News. She was also part of a large family, one of five children, and she often pitched in and helped take care of the younger kids. Even under what must have been tremendously difficult circumstances, one of her brothers told the newspaper that the siblings were very close growing up. In addition to being a devoted mother and grandmother, Mary Ann loved her job. She worked for Al Zulo for over 30 years. She grew very close to Al Zulo, and in 2000, when Al died, he gave the business to Mary Ann and her partner, George Hansen. Al's family said that he wanted to leave his business in the hands of people he trusted, people who basically he considered family. Some people who worked at Al Zulo's gave detectives the name of an employee named Kevin Doyle. They said that Kevin had not been getting along with Mary Ann. Kevin had recently been fired, and they said that he had been under stress. Police determined that the time of death had been sometime on the evening of December 21st, after Marianne finished with work. Forensic analysis determined that she had been dead for more than four hours, but less than 24. As a lot of true crime fans know, in these cases, time of death is often approximate, so it's important to piece together her last movements and figure out who saw her last. The police believe that the killer would have had to know that Marianne would be at the office alone. So, probably someone close to the business, maybe a customer or someone who worked with Marianne. The perpetrator would have to have access to the office, probably someone who had a key or someone who Marianne would have let in. Kevin Doyle had a key, according to people familiar with the business. Kevin had recently been fired, and Marianne had told people that she didn't trust him. His alibi also seemed a bit shaky. He said that he had been home, alone, and sick at the time of the murder. But because he was alone, no one could verify this. Also after the murder, he showed up and offered his assistance to the family. According to forensic files, sometimes when a person is overly involved in the investigation, this can be basically as much of a red flag as someone who avoids law enforcement and family altogether. But then police got a break that would take the case in a totally different direction. They got a call from a concerned citizen who said that they saw a black garbage bag in the Rock River. Police and firemen were sent to the scene, and when they looked out over the icy landscape beyond the Rock Rose Bridge, they could see a bulky black plastic garbage bag just sitting there on top of the ice. They believed that someone had driven a vehicle to the bridge and then thrown the bag over the side. But whoever threw the bag had missed the open water, so the evidence was still sitting there in plain sight. After firemen secured the bag, investigators opened it up, and they found several items inside. A sweater, a pair of gloves, a purse, and a hammer. All of the items covered with blood. The ID inside the brown suede purse belonged to Mary Ann Clibbery. Forensic testing would later reveal that the blood on the outside of the gloves was a match to Marianne. And the skin cells inside the glove matched someone the police had already talked to, Marianne’s business partner of five years, George Hansen. Suddenly, there was an overwhelming amount of evidence pointing to George Hansen. Now, police needed to understand why. George and Marianne had been working together in home and business remodeling for decades. Marianne joined Al Zulo's in 1959, George sometime in the 60s. Marianne managed the business's finances. George Hansen handled sales and construction. But friends and coworkers said they were nothing alike. Marianne was described as elegant, with style, grace, and class. People described George as not particularly ethical, kind of the opposite of all of those things. Co-workers said that George and Marianne had had a love-hate relationship. On the surface, in those happy TV commercials, they seemed to run the business together pretty smoothly. But under the surface, sources close to George said that the resentment was brewing. Specifically, George was angry about the fact that Al Zulo had not made him an equal partner as he had Marianne. And the brown sweater inside the garbage bag was one that employees recognized. It had belonged to Al Zulo and had been hanging in the office. Several people said that George made a point of wearing that sweater regularly. But because the sweater had been in the office, it could have also been touched and potentially worn by several different employees, a point that would be made by the defense later. Forensic investigators found something else inside Marianne's system, large amounts of a prescription sleep medication. But her family insisted they had never known Marianne to take this medication, And police didn't find a prescription. At her job, co-workers remembered that Mary Ann had been falling asleep at the drop of a hat lately. Often they said this would happen after she ate something or drank a cup of coffee. Several witnesses told police that George Hansen would have been the only person with access to Mary Ann's food. And they remembered that he had served her coffee on several occasions, right before she took a nap. Then, just before Christmas, Al Zulo's company Christmas cards were sent out to customers. But Marianne was reportedly surprised when some of those cards came back. Some angry customers contacted Marianne and told her that they had paid money to the company and never received the services that they were promised. So Marianne did some digging. She realized that George had been taking customers' money and putting it into his own bank account. During 2004, Marianne discovered that George had stolen $50,000 from the company, and according to some estimates, he may have even stolen more, up to $100,000. He had stolen so much that the company was reportedly in danger of bankruptcy. After everyone else left, Marianne stayed late on the 21st to go over the books and to confront George. People who knew Marianne believe that she probably planned to tell George that he could repay the money, but they also said that her ethics would have compelled her to go to the authorities if he didn't. Marianne was kind, and even though she didn't trust George in business matters, Anne had told people that she suspected that he may try to do something to her. In the end, it seems that she didn't believe that he was capable of something so horrific. Marianne's secretary left early, so Marianne was left alone with George. She never made it out of that meeting alive. Police were taking a close look at George Hansen's life and discovering that he had a long history of fraud and scams. Though this isn't mentioned in a lot of media coverage about the case, in 1999, George started buying, renovating, and reselling homes with his son, Todd Hansen. At one point, Todd was a trader on the Chicago Board Options Exchange, but he was charged with several white-collar crimes, according to the Chicago Tribune, including federal fraud charges. In 1993, when he was just 30, Todd was sentenced to six years in prison for stealing $2 million from his options trading customers. According to court records, Todd promised his clients big returns of up to 50%, but stole the money instead and used it to pay his personal debts. George and Todd were also accused of mortgage fraud. They were sued by Cook County, accused of forging land records to take about half a million dollars from loans on eight properties. That lawsuit was dismissed, according to the newspaper. But prosecutors charged George and Todd Hanson with money laundering, identity theft, and forgery for allegedly taking over $100,000 from mortgage loans on a Bronzeville home. They were all set to go to trial, but then a former drug dealer who was a key witness against the Hansons was murdered in December 2003. Now, Todd Hanson's former attorney said in an interview that as far as he knew, Todd was never questioned about that murder. That murder, by the way, is still unsolved. In 2003, Todd Hanson was sentenced to two years in federal prison, this time for stealing $618,000 from Florida stock investors. I'm mentioning George's son because George and his son worked together. Their methodology went back a long time and was very predatory. A Chicago Tribune article described Todd Hansen as, quote, a bird dog who scouted home buying opportunities for the firm by knocking on the doors of owners who fell behind on tax bills or mortgage payments, end quote. At the same time, a source told the newspaper that he had a hard time believing it because in person, Todd was, the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. In covering Todd's crimes, reporter David Jackson of the Chicago Tribune told the story of a former nurse who had a mental breakdown after losing her home. Jackson wrote, quote, it took a deputy sheriff and a four-man crew about an hour to put the 58-year-old former pediatric nurse out of her home, quote. Now, as part of this article, the reporter asked why Law enforcement doesn't catch more white-collar criminals and prosecute them. Basically, the article stated that authorities can't do anything unless the evidence suggests that these guys are stealing huge six-figure amounts. And even then, they're very hard to prosecute. Family and friends said the pediatric nurse had been an easy target. She lost her job and stopped making her mortgage payments. So when Todd approached her, she'd been feeling desperate When he told her that he could help her keep her house, she believed him. Instead, he somehow got a land deed and ended up giving the house to his associates. She was left with nothing and lost her home. White-collar criminals take everything. George and Todd, as a father and son team, showed no remorse in stealing and ruining people's lives. Red-collar criminology shows us that George Hanson was exactly the sort of criminal who would likely resort to violence. He was a ticking time bomb. Police investigating Marianne's murder were analyzing the contents of the garbage bag, and they found more witnesses, including one who had seen a vehicle drive past the point where the garbage bag was multiple times. Again, it seems that George's narcissism and belief that he was super smart and couldn't get caught caused him to make some truly dumb mistakes. First, there was the fact that he didn't throw the bag into the river where it could have been washed away forever. Secondly, there was the vehicle that he was driving. The truck had vanity license plates that spelled out Zulo, the name of the business. Investigators took a look inside this vehicle, and they found fishing rope, which they say indicated to them that George may have been planning to go back to the river, maybe to try to fish the bag out of the water or bury it somewhere else. A forensic team ran a fingerprint analysis on all of the items in the bag, They found three fingerprints and a palm print. All of them were a match to George. George Hanson was arrested on December 23rd. He was charged with Marianne's murder. At first, he denied everything. But soon, his story started to change. And police were uncovering even more details of how George had gone through with his evil plan. Randy Baxter, the employee who walked into Al Zulo's with George on the day Marianne was found, testified that George had called him and asked him to meet at 7 a.m. that morning. We can't know for sure, but this does bring to mind that in a lot of murders, the killer doesn't want to be the person to find the body alone. Randy testified that when he got to Al Zulo's, he saw Marianne's car in the parking lot, but he said he couldn't see any lights on inside the business, according to Beloyed Daily News. He knew that Marianne had heart problems, so he ran to check out her car. Then he went inside and saw George. As he was walking down the hallway to his office, he stumbled on Marianne's body. Horrified, Randy called 911. He said that he went to check for a pulse, but it was obvious that she was dead. Randy said, quote, "...George was standing next to her, telling her to get up, like she was sleeping or napping," end quote. Investigators referred to someone who had snapped by committing this murder, but again, despite the violent attack, George was not taking the actions of a man in a panic. This was someone who had been lying and stealing and getting away with drugging his colleague for a long time. Police questioned George's sister. She admitted that she had sent George the sleeping pills. He'd paid her $25 for them. She said that she had no idea that he was giving them to Marianne. And throughout 2004, Marianne had been telling friends and family that she believed that George was stealing from the company, that he was taking more and more money, and that she was afraid for her life. In kind of a crazy twist, Frank Perry, the red-collar expert we talk about so often on this podcast, was actually George Hansen's defense attorney. And this was the case that he said got him his start in investigating red-collar fraud. Frank Perry and Terrence Lichtenwald covered this case in their article in Fraud Magazine titled White-collar Fraud Turns Red. They wrote, quote, In one instance, Clibbery reported her brakes failed just after her partner had used her car. In another, she woke up to find her couch on fire shortly before she had fallen asleep. The defendant had escorted her home because she was feeling tired. Actually, she had complained of feeling tired often during that year. In the last recorded incident before her death, the defendant handed Clibbery a cup of coffee laced with a pink substance resembling something she detected on a salad he'd given her several months earlier. The toxicology report determined that it was a sleep aid known as zolpidem, a generic form of Ambien. After the coffee incident, Clibbery told her doctor and a police officer she believed her business partner was trying to kill her, end quote. By 2004, Marianne had decided that she was ready to retire. So on December 21st, George knew that Marianne wanted to leave the business, which meant that she would probably want to cash out and take her share. And he would then have to explain where the cash was. George Hanson knew that he had been caught, and he was running out of time. So when Marianne confronted him, he lashed out violently. George had a fairly elaborate alibi for the night Marianne was murdered. And the defense had an interesting strategy. They did not deny that it was George's DNA inside the gloves. They said that George had found the body and dumped the garbage bag. But they insisted that George had just found Marianne on the floor and then panicked. He had had nothing to do with her death. George said that the last time he saw Marianne alive was when he left work. At approximately 5.15 p.m. on December 21st. He said that Mary Ann stayed late, saying that she had some Christmas shopping to finish. According to court records, George left work, then stopped to pull some money out of an ATM at around 5.25 p.m. before going to a local bar, the Backyard Bar and Grill, at 5.30 p.m. Over the next hour and a half, he waited for his wife and ordered several vodka and squirts. Witnesses said that he talked to several people and seemed to be in a pretty social and friendly mood. Then his wife got there at around 6 p.m. The bartender who was working that night, Hillary Nash, testified that she remembered seeing George and his wife having a few more cocktails. She said the couple left at around 6.30 p.m. Another witness said that he was, quote, having his usual brandy old fashion and was in good spirits, end quote. At some point, George headed to another bar, the Singapore Grill. The owner of that establishment testified that he talked to George that night. He said that George had bought a $50 gift certificate for the restaurant from him. George would later testify that the gift certificate had been a Christmas gift for Marianne. He said, quote, she enjoyed the restaurant and my wife and I enjoyed it, end quote. George left the Singapore Grill at around 7 p.m., and said that he decided that he may need his gloves because it was kind of cold. He made the decision to swing by the office to pick them up. He said that he got there at around 7.10 p.m., and that's when he said he found Marianne dead on the floor. He said he thought about calling 911, but when he saw his bloody hammer and sweater there, he panicked. George said that he was afraid, quote, they would think I did it because it's my stuff, end quote. So after grabbing a garbage bag, George gathered up Marianne's things, along with the stained sweater and the hammer, and put everything inside. He then threw the bag with the blood covered items inside on the back seat of his car and headed to pick up his granddaughter from driving school. He said that during all this time, he didn't call the police because his mind was racing and he needed time to think. But during this time, multiple witnesses say that he was having conversations with multiple people and seemed completely normal. At one point, he even stopped to pick up a sandwich. Then his granddaughter wanted to go to the tanning bed, so he said that he went with her to Tropical Exposure Tanning in Roscoe. They checked in at 7.44 p.m., according to the business owner, but George said that he was too terrified to tan. So while his granddaughter was catching UVA rays, he was making a plan to get rid of the incriminating evidence. That's when he said that he decided to head to the Roscoe Road Bridge and get rid of the garbage bag. And at 8.45 p.m., that's what he did. After dropping off his granddaughter, he said, quote, I parked on the north side and ran and dropped it over the south side, end quote. Then he called Randy Baxter, arranged to meet him at work. And when they found Marianne, George acted shocked. He called Marianne's name when they walked into the business and acted super concerned for her welfare the entire time. At some point, he returned to the Rock River to see if the bag was still there. He said, It was just a big rock on my shoulders. After Marianne's body was found, George called her boyfriend Gene at around 7.45 a.m. and told him bluntly that Marianne was dead. After the police came to the scene, he went to another bar called Croc's Pub. He was there on the 23rd playing video poker when he was arrested. Obviously, George's story seemed to make no sense. Why wouldn't he call to get help for Marianne, especially since it obviously took her some time to bleed to death? At the trial, many of Marianne's friends and colleagues, several of whom knew George, talked about how he seemed to show no emotion. Frank Perry, the red-collar expert who was George Hansen's public defender in the case, would later write that white-collar criminals avoid violence, not because of some sort of moral code, but because they don't want to get caught stealing because basically violence would bring them unwanted attention. So in general, they don't commit violent crimes simply because they want to blend in, that is, until they are threatened. He wrote, quote, however, if circumstances compromise their ability to carry out their white collar crimes, this subgroup will resort to violent behavior to remove the perceived threat to their schemes. The pattern presented in the matrix shows that the trigger in each homicide was the perpetrator's perception that the victim had detected the fraud or was about to and would reveal it to others. So the key factor is the defendant's perception of discovery, even if unfounded, end quote. He points out that red-collar criminals are so terrified of being exposed that they'll turn on their victims even if the victim isn't necessarily planning on going to the authorities. Almost everyone who knew Marianne insisted that she would have given George Hansen another chance if he had just asked for it and promised to repay the money. But George had another idea. His defense team claimed that George had no motive for killing Marianne. They claimed that Marianne had been helping George steal money from the company and committing fraud herself. George Hansen's defense team claimed that George actually needed Marianne's help to continue to take money from the company. Marianne's friends and family said this was ridiculous. They said she didn't have it in her character to steal money and had always been honest and straightforward in her business dealings. Also, the police investigated this angle. They took a look. They took a detailed look at Marianne's accounts. They found out that she'd only been taking the proper amount of money that was her compensation and that she had no additional money diverted to her bank account, as George had done. And testimony from other co-workers would paint a picture of George as a man who didn't just fly into a rage that day. The evidence pointed to a crime that had been meticulously planned. First, there was the suspected drugging of Marianne's food and coffee that had taken place over a long period of time. There were the possible other murder attempts on Marianne's life. Then there was Marianne's friend and longtime coworker, her secretary, Phyllis Harl, who was a witness for the prosecution. When Phyllis took the stand, her testimony was pretty devastating to the defense. Phyllis said that she normally finished work at five. But that day, she asked if she could leave early to deliver some Christmas candy. Marianne had said that was fine, so Phyllis walked out the door at around 4.20 p.m. She left Marianne alone with George, something that would haunt her later. Phyllis testified that George had asked her that day for a toolbox, which Marianne kept by her desk. A toolbox that contained the hammer he used to kill Marianne. The prosecutors picked up on this as well. Winnebago County Deputy State's Attorney Margie O'Connor said, quote, he saw her bloody body, and he showed no regret. He said it was the dumbest thing he ever did. It was the cruelest thing he ever did, taking this special lady from her friends and family, end quote. According to the Rockford Register star, she also said, quote, He made his living as a salesman, and he's trying to sell you right now. Right now, George Hansen is trying to make the sale of his life. He's trying to deceive you, just like he tried to deceive the police, end quote but the jury did not buy the defense's version of events. After deliberating for only a few hours, in October 2005, a jury found George guilty of four counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison. He is currently behind bars at the Pontiac Correctional Center. Margie O'Connor later spoke to Forensic Files for their episode. She talked about the great police work done by the Rockford Police Department and Winnebago County Sheriff's Department that had helped the jury connect the dots. Without this forensic evidence, as we know from other red-collar cases, even with the knowledge of George's fraud, the jury may not have connected his white-collar crime to the violent murder. O'Connor also talked about what an amazing person Marianne was and what a massive effect that she had on those around her, her friends, family, and the business community. The business that Al worked so hard to build fell into financial ruin following Marianne's death and George's conviction. Many of the projects remain unfinished, and there were multiple lawsuits, according to local papers. In 2005, a bank filed a civil suit for $100,000, alleging that Al Zulo had ceased to operate in any substantial capacity, according to court filings. The lawsuit would have allowed the bank to collect assets to repay the debt. Several former customers had liens filed on their homes. Jean Sundine passed away in 2019 at the age of 89. Over the years, he did several interviews and always talked about the fact that Marianne had been the light of his life. George Hansen did not just steal money from the company and from Marianne. He stole her dreams, he stole her future with her boyfriend. And judging by his absolute lack of remorse, if he had not been caught and convicted, he would be out there right now trying to sweet-talk another victim. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? No. <laughs>